Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Hey all, good to see you. It is somehow the end of August already, and I honestly cannot believe that. Somehow during COVID, time moves both slow and fast. It's terrible. Uh, I'm actually wearing shorts because this is a hot day. Uh, you'll never know, but it's true. I'm wearing shorts. That's where we're at today. So we've got a lot to do. We are doing the entirety of Romans chapter four. Uh, so go ahead and turn there, and we are going to jump right in. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of catch up if you're new with us. We uh, have been looking at Romans for the summer. And the first three chapters, Paul has been kind of laying the groundwork for this argument for racial unity in the church. So the background very quickly is Jew and Gentile kind of disharmony in the church in Rome. One of the first, if not the first significant multiracial Christian church. And they're, they're struggling, okay? They're struggling with uh, theology. They're struggling with practices. They're struggling with, with culture. Uh, and Paul is, is trying to unite these two groups um, by bringing them to the same place theologically, namely that our salvation, our place with God, our place in the world is entirely the product of the grace of God initiated by faith on our part. So that idea of salvation by faith as the unifying factor here is the key. So in chapter four, he is going to use a case study, in fact, the case study uh, of Abraham, Father Abraham, the one who had many sons, and many sons also had Father Abraham, right? I'm one of them, so are you. Anyway, so uh, this is the case study that Paul is going to argue that not only does God save by faith, but this is how he's always done it, right? The always salvation by faith has been the plan of God. Now, one quick thought on this, because I have heard over the years people argue that salvation by faith is kind of a cop-out, right? Like it's an easy way to be in with God. It doesn't require any obedience. It doesn't require, to be, require you to be a good person. In fact, you could argue it actually disincentivizes obedience because uh, why go through all the struggle and hardship of self-sacrifice and caring about other people if all you got to do is believe in God? Okay. Now, I think that is exactly the opposite of what is true, actually. And I want to I demonstrate that here in this passage. Before I do that, I want to take just a quick second to talk about um, what a salvation by works actually could look like and what it often does look like in our world. So, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith some years ago um, kind of put together what he uh, understood to be the religion of the West, right? This, this kind of uh, aggregate of ideas and thoughts and values of Western people, and he called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning it was about a, a moral way of living, therapeutic in the sense that it was about me feeling good, and deism in the sense that it's about God, but kind of in this vague God kind of sense, right? So there were five pillars of what he called moralistic therapeutic deism, and they're this. Pillar number one. 
that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over life on earth. Now, he, he watches over it kind of from a distance. There is no relationship and there's not really any desire for relationship, but there is a God that exists. Number two, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So think about the religions as like a Venn diagram and the, mor the morality of the Bible and the Quran and, and Buddhism and, uh, and all of the different major world religions, kind of where they overlap and all agree on stuff. We go, yeah, okay, that's what good is. And we should all just kind of do that. The things we all agree about. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, right? So this is the goal, be happy and feel good about yourself. Problem is happy is very subjective and feeling good about yourself is largely codependent, right? It's basically how you think other people feel about you. So that's number three. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So basically, God is a rich but distant father, right? And there's been so many movies made about rich, distant fathers and how they screw up their kids. So I don't see how that's super, uh, uh, super ideal situation. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die, right? And of course that begs the question, who's good? And is it just the people who follow the Venn diagram? And uh, how well do they have to follow it? Do they have to follow it perfectly? Like, what does that even mean, right? So this is a vision for, very practically, a vision for what a salvation by works actually means when it's played out in the real world. Meaning, it's squishy, it's vague, and there's not a real clear sense of what any of it means, except that we want to feel good about our ability to be good people, and so it all just becomes squishy and vague. That's basically what a salvation by works religion ends up looking like. Now, I want to argue, and I think Romans 4 argues, that actually salvation by faith challenges us to be both transformationally more than moralistic therapeutic deism and mercifully less than something like uh, a salvation by works. In this passage, we're gonna see how salvation by faith and that idea of salvation by faith challenges us in four ways. It challenges our self-reliance, it challenges our self-sufficiency, it challenges our self-esteem, and it challenges our predisposition towards self-pity. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self-esteem, and self-pity. What I love about this is that the first two things it challenges, self-reliance and self-sufficiency, and the second two things it challenges, self-esteem and self-pity, often uh, are, are directed at two different kinds of people. And it's one of my favorite things about the gospel, that it is an equal opportunity confrontation, right? Like no matter who you are and how, if you tend towards self-reliance and self-sufficiency or you tend towards a need for self-esteem and maybe a temptation to self-pity, no matter, and there's overlap between those for sure, but the gospel will challenge you and this idea in particular of salvation by faith will challenge you. So let's jump in and see how that's going to happen. Romans 4 verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read through that. Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, so if, if, if you know, name dropping Abraham wasn't enough, Paul feels like he's got to name drop David too. Just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from work, saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Okay, so the, the key piece in this passage is that Abraham believed God and was made righteousness be, righteous because of that faith. That it was that was the trigger that he believed God. Now, this is all referencing a story that you may or may not be familiar with, and and just. As a side note, we're actually going to be covering in our fall series in going back to Genesis and looking at the life of Abraham. But I want to jump back really quickly to Genesis chapter 12 to see this moment that Paul is referring to. So Genesis 12, 1 to 4, this is the calling of Abraham. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, that was his name before he changed it to Abraham. Long story, not super interesting. Go from your country, God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Now, what's remarkable about this is before Genesis chapter 12, there's not a lot of Abraham, right? Not a lot of Abraham and God, certainly. In fact, almost none, right? Abraham's kind of mentioned a little bit before, but there was no like pre-existing relationship. So God comes to Abram and goes, listen, go. Go from your family, from your father's house, from your kindred, from your homeland. Go from everything you know to a place, not, not a specific place. He goes, just to a place that I will show you right? And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. I got your back. I got a plan. He goes, in you, Abram, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, that's quite a promise, but it's even bigger promise when you think about the fact that Abram here is 75 years old, very, very old, has no children at this point. His wife, Sarah, is, is, is barren, right? Unable to have children. And God comes to him out of nowhere, no pre-existing relationship, no buildup to this, and just goes, hey, you're my guy, and we're gonna change the world. And Abram goes, great, I'm in. That sounds great. And Paul goes, that was the moment when God credited righteousness, made Abram righteous, not because he was obedient, he hadn't done anything, but because he believed God and responded to God, right? Abram didn't say to God, no, I want to make my own way. I want to earn my own keep. I want, to, I, I want to earn this. I want to make my way in the world. He didn't go kind of John Wayne bootstrap, Robert Redford bootstrap. I tried to, you know, I tried to come up with a, a more recent illustration than John Wayne and Robert Redford since most of you aren't old enough to know who that is. But then I realized nobody bootstraps anymore. We all want things given to us. So there's no John Wayne in our generation. It's just the sad reality of our world. But nonetheless... Abram didn't do that. 
He didn't say, no, I, I got to earn my keep and make my own way. He didn't do that. He goes, okay, God, whatever you want. Salvation by faith. Salvation by faith alone requires us to say, it challenges, sorry, it challenges our desire to say, I can do it, right? And it requires us to say, I can't do it. It challenges that, that, that innate thing in us that wants to say, I got this. I can do it. I don't need your help, right? This is something that kids learn really early on, right? They want to pour their own milk or they want to make their own cereal or they want to cook their own steak or whatever. And I'm like, no, you're two. You, you can't handle the spatula effectively and you got the grill way too low for that steak. So listen, they, but they want to be self-sufficient. Now, my two and a half year old William has also learned to manipulate the other side of this because one in one moment he'll go, no, I do it. I do it. I do it. Or actually, he goes, me do it. Me do it. And then I'll ask him to pick up a, a truck or go, well, go upstairs and he goes, me can't. Me can't. Which is first grammatically ridiculous, but also infuriating. He's manipulating the situation. And on one hand, he goes, me can do it. And then me can't. I mean, make up your mind, kid. Right? So this is innate, born into this desire to kind of be our own person, make our own way. But salvation by faith requires us to identify and admit not only that I can't do it, which is hard enough, but also identify who can, right? Tim Keller says this, he says, when a child asks his mother for something he needs, trusting that she will give it, his asking does not merit anything. It is merely the way he receives his mother's generosity. This is crucial because if you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking at Christ and start looking at your faith. When you see doubts, it will rattle you. When you don't feel it quite clearly or excitedly, it will worry you. What has happened? You've turned your faith even into a work. Faith is only the instrument by which you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. Which is why the Bible talks about how the rich and the powerful have such a hard time with the gospel. And, and let's be honest, like the rich and the powerful, that's us. This is, this is not some, it's not just Bill Gates. It's not just Jeff Bezos. It's us. We are rich and powerful people who struggle with the gospel because in every other part of our life, self-reliance is not only celebrated, but it often works. Or at least it appears that our success is the result of our self-reliance. And because we love that narrative, and what it says about us, we want to believe that it's our self-reliance that leads to our success. Salvation by faith challenges us. On the most important thing in our lives, it challenges us to say, will you please do it? But see, God knows us well, and so he takes the first step. He doesn't wait for us to ask, he tells us, I can do it. And we simply respond with open hands and a relinquished will. So salvation by faith might seem easy, but when it comes down to the moment of saying not only I can't, but will you please? 
or when God comes to us and says, hey, let me do this for you. Man, for many of us, that takes a, a huge dose of humility and, and honesty to be able to go, yeah, I can't do this. I need your help. So it challenges our self-reliance every step of the way. Number two, salvation by faith challenges our self-sufficiency. Now, these may seem really similar, self-reliance and self-sufficiency, and, and they are, but they're also different at a really significant level. The choice that we make to be self-reliant comes from a basic presumption that we are self-sufficient. Okay, so let me say it this way. Salvation by faith challenges our self-reliance so that we can say, will you please? Salvation by faith challenges our self-sufficiency so that we might start by saying, I can't. Okay, so let's read verses 9 through 12. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abram had been before he was circumcised. Now, a lot of circumcision talk here. Josh was begging me to be able to teach this passage. I said, no, it's my turn. But let me, let me reread this. Let me paraphrase this section just a little bit. And I, I, I think I, I feel good about it because the question here is about circumcision in its immediate context. But because of the way the Jews thought about circumcision, I think we can faithfully paraphrase verses 10 and 11 this way. It says this, When did God make Abraham righteous? Was it before he was obedient or afterwards? It was before. Abraham was obedient to God after God made him righteous. His obedience was a response and a sign of the grace God showed him. Now, this may seem like nitpicking and semantics, but it's really not. It's actually critical to our understanding of the gospel, and it's critical to our ability to live out the Christian life because it comes down to who gets the credit. And man, our desire for credit runs deep. It runs deep in every human heart. Here's how I know just how deep this urge to take credit goes. Even the way we talk about faith reveals that we still think of it as something we do. It's, it's similar to what Keller was saying in the last section about how we turn even faith into a work that then we can get credit for. When we talk about the strength or the relative weakness of our faith, when we talk about, man, I'm really struggling with my faith, this language makes faith about us rather than God in whom we trust. So here's an illustration of this. When was the last time 
that when right before you sat down in a chair, you thought about how much you, how strong your faith was in that chair. When was the last time that a decision like sitting in a chair, which is a, it, it is an act of faith, you are trusting that that chair and the structural integrity of it is strong enough to hold up your body, no judgments. Now, I, I, I will just speak for myself, I don't often think of my own faith or my own trust and its relative strength or weakness or my, man, my faith is really struggling. The, the whole thought process in that moment is, is the chair strong enough? All of my attention is on the chair. Now, in our house, we have one chair at our dining room table that I don't trust. It is not strong enough. It is a chair that I only put children in, not because I wanna put their lives at risk, but because it, their little bodies are the only thing that that chair can hold up. Now, I'm not gonna tell you which chair that is because it would be hilarious if you sat in it. But I, I, that's the only time I ever think about that. And it's not about me, it's about the chair, okay? So our faith in God is not different than that, okay? It's important for us to remember that the object of our faith is the point, not the strength of our faith, okay? Let me illustrate this a different way. I can have um, a, a, a deeply committed faith a, 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 an overriding trust, a complete conviction that if I simply flap my arms fast enough and long enough that I could fly across the country. I mean, I could believe that, right? I, I, I could have full conviction that this long enough, right? Hopefully this gets turned into a gift at some point, but it, I, that I could believe that this would get me across the country. And it does not matter how hard I believe, this will never get me there. It won't. On the other hand, you could drag me kicking and screaming and fighting and biting onto an airplane and lock me in and probably have to sedate me and put me in that airplane and I could have absolute terror and no faith whatsoever that that airplane could get me across the country. And guess what? It would. Why? Because the strength of my conviction placed in something not powerful enough to do what I want it to do warrants me nothing. The entire point is the relative strength of the object of my faith. Is that thing strong enough, good enough, able enough to do what I need it to do? My convictions about it is relatively meaningless compared to the power of the thing itself. Similarly, the strength of my faith matters relatively little compared to the strength of my faith's object, God. Salvation by faith challenges our self-sufficiency because it forces us to admit, to admit he can do what I cannot. That, that, that desire to be self-sufficient, to be able to handle it ourselves. Salvation by faith challenges us at that core sense of what we can do and forces us to admit he can do what I cannot. So it doesn't matter how, how much faith I muster in some other thing, only God can bring me the life that I need. Number three, 
Salvation by faith challenges our self-esteem. There's an old saying that past performance is the best predictor of future behavior. And this is often true for everybody else, right? For ourselves, though, the past has an explanation. There are extenuating circumstances. There's a reason why things didn't go well in the past and will go much better in the future. The future for us will be different, will be better. We can do this. Paul disagrees. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. Let me read that again because this is the key piece. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, why would that be the case, right? So I, I get why if it, if it depends on our adherence or our obedience to the law, I get why faith would be null because it's not really about faith, it's about my adherence to the law. But why is the promise void? Why would, if the, if the, the details of the contract or the, the conditions of the agreement were based on my adherence to the law, why then would the promise of God in that contract, what he's going to do, why would it be void? For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. D did you catch what Paul's saying here? He goes, the reason that this whole thing is based on faith, faith in the gracious mercy of God, is because if it were dependent on you adhering to the law, holding up your end of the contract, it would fail forever. Every single time, all the way into the future, it will always fail. That's what Paul's saying. He, he has no regard for your future performance. So God doesn't either and goes, basically, listen, the only way this works is if this whole thing's by grace. Like, I just give it to you and you receive it by faith. That's the only way this covenant works because if it is a, an actual contract where you do your part and I do my part, it's going to fall apart because inevitably you're not going to do your part part. Now, this cuts to the heart. God is saying that we aren't trustworthy enough for a normal contract. A, a normal, you do your part, I'll do my part contract. That, that's not, it won't work because we won't do our part. God doesn't believe us. God doesn't trust us to hold up our end of the bargain. Now, imagine a spouse or a close friend saying something like that. I don't trust you enough to give you control of the future. One of the most challenging things about salvation by faith is that it forces us to keep our eyes and our trust on God. It leaves no room for navel-gazing or self-involvement. It has no value for long discussions of your value. 
and in a world somewhat obsessed with itself and finding, knowing, and displaying our own personal value, this is completely countercultural. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old British preacher, says it this way, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. Now, don't get me wrong. Salvation by faith doesn't diminish your actual value by even one one hundredth of one percent. You will never cease to be as valuable as you are today or have ever been. You are forever an image bearer of God. Nothing about that can change. You are forever made by the one who Paul describes there in verse 17 saying, He who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God has called you into existence and that very calling endowed you with inherent dignity and value. And there is nothing about that that changes. And there's nothing about salvation by faith that calls that into question. But see, what the world often calls self-esteem is usually more about making yourself feel important than it is a genuine inquiry into the nature of your value. Self-esteem is subjective, it's relative, and it's a moving target. Your value is not. So the challenge of self-esteem, challenge to self-esteem by salvation, by faith, isn't to make you think less of yourself. In fact, to turn a phrase, it is simply to think of yourself less. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, and no amount of mocking will make me stop quoting him, says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seems a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will, be, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Salvation by faith challenges us to be able to say the words, I never will, but he always does. I never will, but he always does. And to be able to say, I never will, not in some sense of the degradation of who you are, but just an honest assessment of your brokenness and need. But more importantly, a faithful conviction about who God is and what God does. Last, number four. Salvation by faith challenges our self-pity. Now, let me be clear about something first. Sadness and depression are not self-pity. 
Sadness is a feeling that God has given us to be able to navigate a broken world and express loss and value. Depression is a clinical expression that reflects some real brokenness that needs to be cared for and addressed professionally. Those things are not self-pity. Self-pity is thinking you deserve something that you are not getting and then playing the victim as a result. So let's read in verse 18. Paul says, In hope he, Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Love that. It's in the Bible. I didn't say it. Don't get mad at me. Paul said it. He's a bad person. He was as good as dead. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. Now, God promised Abraham a family, right? When he was 75 years old. He was 99 years old before Sarah got pregnant with Isaac. So as crazy as the promise was in Genesis chapter 12, by the time it actually was, came to fruition and Isaac was born, Abraham was 100. 25 years went by. And I, I can only guess that years when you're 75 are way longer because you're just thinking, man, how many do I have left? And we're going one and two and three and four and 25. I mean, yeah, Abraham was as good as dead. And then God shows up. So yeah, Abraham very well could have at any point chosen to to choose self-pity and woe is me and God promised, but he hasn't delivered and I'm going to get bitter and angry, but he didn't. Abraham chose to hope in God, the story says. But notice how low the bar is here for Paul. Paul Paul says that that, that Abraham was strengthened in his faith, and there's no question. In the the whole narrative of Genesis 12 all the way to 23, Abraham's faith is strengthened. There's no question about that. But the idea that he didn't waver is, I would say, a generous reading of the story of Abraham. Because sure, like Abraham's faith went like that, but it was like this, okay? It was wavy on its way. It was not a real pretty story. God calls Abraham to go. Abraham goes. Literally the next story at the end of this same chapter in Genesis 12 is Abraham telling Sarah to pretend that she's his sister so that the so that Pharaoh will take her and not get mad at Abraham he's literally giving away his wife to the king in order to avoid his own pain and out of just fear right i mean this is this is not like a, an icon of moral perfection Okay, so when Paul, I just want us to see this as a little side note, when Paul goes, man, he didn't waver and he had strong faith, like the bar is so low. God's like, you still with me? Great, that's enough. Let's keep moving, okay? At no point did Abraham turn away from God, 
But that doesn't mean he was faithfully obedient, that he was moral at every turn, that he then in this moment pursued all the ways of God. That wasn't even kind of true. Because you'd think that, you know, Abraham would give away Sarah and be like, okay, that was a huge mistake. Don't do that again. And, and he would learn from it and grow. No, five chapters later, he does the same thing in Genesis 17. He does it again. He's not learning his lesson. He is a human. He is a human with fear and, and wavers all the time. But Paul goes, but he didn't fundamentally waver. He stayed with God the whole time. And that's important. That's what God asks of us. Just stay with me because God is moving and growing in us. Now, what I want us to see here, though, is Abraham had plenty of opportunities over 25 years between when God made that promise and when God fulfilled the promise. 25 years to go astray, to wallow in self-pity, to complain to God about what he deserves and what he has earned and what he was promised and how can it, you know, why is it taking so long and all that. And Abraham didn't do that. See, we are constantly tempted to self-pity because we want to believe that we deserve what we want. Let me say it again. We want to believe that we deserve whatever it is we want. So when we meet obstacles or the odds get stacked against us, or even when we face actual mistreatment or injustice, we have the same choice as Abraham. We can choose to trust that God will do what he said, or we can wallow in self-pity and expectation and grow bitter and angry that we don't have yet what we deserve. Salvation by faith challenges us to say, I deserve nothing, but God has given me everything. I deserve nothing, but God has given me everything. And this is a big admission because the temptation to victimhood and self-pity is strong. It feels good. You retain power and control when you can take that posture of being the victim of some circumstance or someone else's oppression. Salvation by faith confronts that head on because it challenges you to admit that you deserve nothing and are entirely dependent on God's complete grace for every good thing. Now, Paul sums up this section in verse 23, and I want to bring it home for us as well. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the dead, Jesus, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Those words are a constant source of comfort for me and a constant source of challenge. Because in that one little line sums up my my, my predisposition for sin, my great need, my absolute inability, and Jesus' faithful but sacrificial provision. Salvation by faith is no easy out. 
It's no get out of jail free card. It is an invitation to trust, not in yourself, but in the God who created you from nothing and has saved you from yourself. It is the daily dying to the idea that you are enough, that you can do it, that the future would be different than the past and that you deserve anything. But it is also the path to life, to freedom, to peace, and ultimately to eternal life with God. Let's pray. Jesus, your offer of salvation purely by grace, to be accepted only by faith, Lord, that you, just a picture, you from heaven reaching out to us and saying, let me do it. I, 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 it's already done. I accomplished it. And just, just kind of rest in what I've already done. That's all, all you got to do is just trust that what I have done is enough. You have to, in that process, lay down all of your rights and desires to get credit, to be somebody, to be something, to retain some sense of autonomy or some sense of importance. You got to lay all that down because the, the statement of, I, I, I trust you, I believe you, I will rest in you, is an all-inclusive one. It's one that says, fundamentally, you can do what I cannot do. So God, I, I, I am so thankful for the price you paid, for the offer you make. And I ask that you would give us the humility, the, the self-awareness, that you would open our eyes to be able to see through the lies that are all around us that just tell us how great we are and how capable we are. They, lower the bar while telling us how awesome we are. Lord, just help us to see clearly through it. Not, not so that we get focused on ourselves and our brokenness and sin, though real, but that we would see you. And that compared to what we can do, what you have already done is so far surpassing in greatness that we would run to your arms and accept your grace. And we would do it over and over and over again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all, and we are His.